to the New City Church podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine, that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching from Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, and the message is called, Blessed Are Those Who Mourn. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. Welcome, everybody. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for a time of worship, to sing, to lift our voices to a true and awesome God. And Father, I'm praying this morning, Lord, for just just real real clarity, clarity about the truth of Jesus and the truth of the scriptures and what is true and what do we need today and how are we to respond to you in light of the truth. I pray, God, you give faith the gift of faith to anyone who needs it today. Lord, anyone who is uh, with us today that is uh, suffering from a life of rebellion, anyone today who is in deep sorrow, even as a believer, Lord, because there is mourning and a biblical godly sorrow that is needed. God, speak to your church today. Do what only you can do by the power of your word and through the, the, our great teacher, the Holy Spirit, who points us to Christ. Lord, help us. Help us today. We give this time to you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So it's really good to be back together and um, be going to, through the Beatitudes, and we're on the second Beatitude. We'll ju- we're going to dive right in, but I have a couple things I want to say because they're important enough announcements uh, to, to really say them twice. So it was mentioned over here by Angel um, when, during her prayer time. Is there a little ring going on in here? All right, cool. Just want to make sure I'm not going crazy. I'm the only one hearing it. All right. Um, if you can just not be distracted and listen to me, not the ring in the room. Um, Angel mentioned the Speak Up for Life event, and I want you to hear about it again uh, from me. It's very, very important that you register today for that. So there's only one thing you need to ask yourself. Am I available next Saturday between 10 and 12? And that means, are you dead? Or do you have a disease that keeps you from coming? Um, and, and have you not registered yet? Really, those are the only two things I want to challenge you with because when it comes to the issue of life and our state of Maine, it is absolutely atrocious what is going on. And every Christian should be caring about this. And I know not everyone has the same type of conviction on what we should do. Not everyone's going to do the same thing. But here's something simple you can do is show up here on Saturday for a training 
One, you'll learn about the legislation that's going to be passing. And then two, you'll learn some basic things that you and your family can do to communicate with our lawmakers, writing them cards, writing them letters, who are our legislators in the town that you live in, and what can we do to at least, for this particular bill, prayerfully stop the legalization of a full-term abortion in the state of Maine. It's worth it. It's worth it. So come to that. And we have myself, uh, Matt Brackley, and Ellen, we're going to be running around grabbing you and saying, register, okay, after the service. So if we come running towards you, just know that's why, all right? We're not, don't run away. Um, We want to just walk you through a simple process. We'll have our iPhones. We'll let you just do it right there, okay? So can you guys just be prepared? Don't leave until you've registered. Um, We have six other churches today in our local area that are doing in-person registrations, So prayerfully, we'll have this entire room filled, and we'll have some really good training. All right, that's enough of that. Easter's coming up. Guys, grab one of these cards. We made up 1,200 of them. You can take a good-sized stack for your neighborhood or for your workplace uh, for April 9th. So be praying about that. May the Lord bring many into his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. Um, He doesn't have to wait for Easter, but when we come together and we talk about the resurrection of Christ, it's just such a beautiful day. Um, All right. So we are in Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, and what was mentioned last week is that these are really parad- they're, they're, they're statements of paradox, paradoxical statements. They're something that really only makes sense um, for a kingdom citizen, somebody who is in Christ, a citizen of the kingdom. So if you notice the first one, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he, when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so last week, we, co- we covered that. We took an entire sermon to talk about what does it mean to, be, to have poverty of spirit, to have nothing, and be fully dependent upon Christ, who alone can save And the Spirit of God is the one who brings about the the reality and the awareness that we do have absolutely nothing that we bring to the table that could procure our salvation and redemption. It's only Jesus. And so that is a kingdom awareness. One who is a citizen of heaven can truly say, I have nothing, it is only Jesus Christ. It is only the blood of Christ And so that is a good place to be. And Jesus says, that's the blessed life. That's truly what blessing is and where blessing lies. The blessing or the one who is truly happy is not somebody of this world, but is somebody that is of the kingdom of heaven. And so today we have another paradox presented to us, another kingdom attitude. And again, these are not aspirations necessarily of the natural or unregenerate person. So what I'm not saying today is let's all strive to be better people, although that would not be a bad thing to be better people, but we're not just striving to be good people. What we're striving for is Christ and all that he strived for to save us and to redeem us and to pay for our sin. So all of our striving, all that we do, all of our efforts should really be focused on one thing, and that is Jesus. That is Christ, because he is the God-man. He is the one who suffered and died for sinners. So if they're not aspirations for the natural or the unregenerate, then what are they? And just to reiterate, they are fruits of happiness that come from a born-again life. 
These are fruits of happiness, true happiness. Now, that's something that everybody seeks. It's something that really everybody would want is to be happy in life. But, the king, but kingdom happiness is, is so much different. It's eternal. It's, it's unshakable. It's, it's able to be had to a depth and to a level that the world can't touch. It's not a come-and-go happiness. It is rooted in eternity and in a sovereign work. So they are fruits of happiness that come from a born-again life, something that is, by its very nature, a work of God. Having been born of the Spirit of God, a person is then able to see his sinful or her sinful nature, that it is evil, that it is wretched, that a transforming work of grace was needed. A transforming work of grace by Jesus Christ. And that apart from that transforming work of grace, there is no happiness. So having been born of the Spirit, a person is then able to see that sinful nature. It is the poor in spirit who are blessed because spiritual poverty is the only true assessment of the human condition. So that's the foundation of all of this. Jesus laid that out there, the poor in spirit. And what, what comes next? And this is a great, if you haven't seen it this way before, if the Beatitudes have never been seen in sort of a succession, they really fit together beautifully. Having seen by the Spirit, having been born again, your spiritual poverty, what then comes next? And so I thought it'd be good to turn to this place where Jesus mentioned being born again. Turn to John chapter 3 with me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John chapter 3. We'll just read a few verses just to get the taste of what is being said here. Look at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless, unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you hear what that said? Without being born again, there actually is no ability to even see the kingdom. If just seeing the kingdom is an impossibility without new birth, which is what Jesus is saying, unless one is born again, unless there is new birth, you can't see the kingdom. You are limited to your physical sight and serving the kingdoms of this world. But being born again, one can see the kingdom. So if it's an impossibility to see the kingdom without new birth, then we know that a person cannot see the true nature of their sin apart from the sight that new birth gives. When new birth is given by grace and God gives a gift of faith and a person's heart is turned from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, to then see the truth of God, when that begins to happen, when that process begins, they can begin to see true spiritual poverty. It's an impossibility without the new birth. We know that a person cannot see the true nature of their sin apart from the sight that the new birth gives. And having come to understand that, to understand that it is the undeserving who possess the kingdom, not the deserving. 
to understand that it is the undeserving and that it is by grace, then and only then can we mourn the sin that once separated us from him and find comfort truly. See, the succession of this is that without being born again, you can't see the kingdom. But once your eyes are open to see the kingdom by grace, by the grace of God, not only do you see the kingdom, but you see your spiritual poverty. The natural next step, having been saved and brought into the kingdom, by the grace of God is to, is to have a, a biblical, godly mourning and sorrow over the sin that once separated you from God. And so the challenge for today is really to keep that ever before our eyes through this whole sermon, through this whole text, is the idea of lamenting and mourning our sin. And having an awareness that to mourn is a good thing. For a Christian to mourn what they have done or what they do in the eyes of God is a good thing. And that we would not be people who shy away from it, but actually embrace it. And so that's the ultimate subject of our text, the lamenting of sin. And why do we know it's the lamenting of sin? Because he just says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we know based on the context of all that Jesus is saying about the kingdom and the poverty of spirit, beginning with the one who is poor in spirit, they get the kingdom. And now those who mourn are those who will be comforted. It is the very cause of spiritual poverty is the sin of human beings. It's the very cause of our inability to offer anything to God or bring anything to him capable of saving ourselves. The very cause of it is the sin nature. And so having that be the case, we know that what we are addressing is the mourning of our sins. So the question would be asked or should be asked, are there any other things worth lamenting? I mean, I have all kinds of other things in my life that I mourn, and you do too. You mourn certain things, certain events. Why is it so important that, that you and I, or you as a believer in Christ, have a, a, a mourning, a lamenting over your sin? Isn't it worth me just mourning the great deaths around me and the, the tragedy? Is it, what, isn't that enough? Why would I mourn my own sin? But the truly blessed, remember, these are the Beatitudes. These are blessings. The truly blessed have a kingdom perspective, a new perspective. You're not thinking like the world. What do people generally mourn over? What do you, as you you assess your own life for a moment, what are the things that you truly become sad about and you mourn? Now, the... The word here in the Greek is not just being upset. This is a deep mourning. This is like mourning the loss of a loved one. That's the word that's being used here. It's not just, are you sad? Are you a little upset? Is there a deep grief? Now, what do we grieve over? What do we mourn over? Often we mourn over our problems. Right? You may have a list of problems, some of them physical Things in your house that need fixed, bills that need to be paid, and you mourn. Maybe a physical problem, something that you're actually dealing with in your physical body, so you mourn. You mourn these things. There's a deep grief. Why, God? Why? When we mourn our problems, we mourn also other people's problems. 
When another person is a problem to you, their problems interrupt your happy life and the blessings of your life. Other people get in the way of our joy. Well, we, can, we mourn those things at times. You get very deeply grieved and upset, sometimes even sinfully angry about other people's problems. We don't handle them right. We also grieve about our circumstances, the circumstances that we just happen to have right now. And also asking similar questions, God, why? Why am I not happier and healthier? Why do I not have a job right now? Why is the world the way it is? And so we mourn these things. And we also mourn the circumstances of others. In a much more sinful uh, understanding of this, we, we mourn our dissatisfaction. We are dissatisfied people and we mourn our own dissatisfaction. I wish I was just more satisfied. Or I can't be satisfied with what I have. I need more. I need more. More possessions, more money, a better job, more relationships, a different relationship. Whatever it is, you just fill in that blank. Dissatisfaction, we often... When you see somebody who's having a bad day, you say, what's wrong? Sometimes it's a real legitimate thing, right? A real legitimate answer. What would we often mourn over? Very rarely are we actually mourning over our own sin. And so that's the comparison I want you to be able to... Of all the times that you mourn and grieve and are deeply upset, what is it really about? And do you ever intentionally mourn about what you have done and the condition of your heart before God, even as a believer? So I want to address both believer and non-believer because the non-believer has never mourned over their sin, ever. And only through spiritual life that Christ gives can we then begin to mourn what we have done in our offense against God. And the blessing that Jesus is saying here is that there is truly comfort for the one who mourns. That's the blessing and the promise is that there is comfort, real comfort from the Son of God for the one who mourns over their sin. That's a promise from him. There's a worldly kind of sorrow, though, that never accomplishes anything except that someone might pity us. Think about what often our own sorrow does other than inviting someone to feel bad for us. So this might be an area of repentance, an area where you need to really think about how you share your news and what is going on with you. What are you seeking to accomplish by sharing what's going on in your life with other people? Sometimes we just selfishly want to be pitied we want someone to feel really bad for us. Very rarely, though, do we take our circumstances and the issues of our life and mourn our sin before God and say, God, what is the condition of my heart? What am I doing? Have I sinned against you? Is there perpetual, ongoing sin? Am I holding back something from you? To be honest before the Lord and mourn that sin. Now, what does it actually look like to mourn? So think about this for a moment. It's, it's not something that the natural man can do. It's not something that apart from a revelation from God through his word that anybody can do. A person must know by the truth of God's word what sin actually does and how it offends a holy God. And the believer in Christ has no excuse, even being justified of all of our sin and forgiven, past, present, and future, washed under the blood of Jesus Christ, 
How much more so then should we mourn our sin? How much more so? Now, it's a healthy mourning. It's a healthy grieving. And it's one that leads to comfort. That's the truth. It's not, somebody, it's not staying there, but it's being lifted out. And then there's a godly sorrow. So there's a worldly sorrow that often leads to only self-pity and the pity of others. And then there is a godly sorrow. What does godly sorrow look like? What should it look like for you in your life? And then what does it produce? In other words, what kind of mourning leads to a kind of comfort that leads to being the happiest people on earth? There is that kind of mourning and a grief that leads to a kind of comfort from Christ himself that leads to us being the happiest people on earth. What do the Beatitudes ultimately say? This is happy. These are happy people. Blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poverty in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted. These are paradoxes, remember. They don't make sense outside of the kingdom. But they are blessings. So what does it look like to be those happiest of people? So I want to look at a few texts. We're going to look at three to help get a rounded perspective of what it looks like biblically to mourn our sin and what it ultimately leads to. So if you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. 2 Corinthians 7. Now the context of 2 Corinthians, as some of you know, is this is a follow-up letter to a first letter, 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians The Apostle Paul addressed some great, grievous sins within the church. And the second letter being a follow-up, this will make sense as to what he's saying. So in 2 Corinthians 7, having already addressed a sin of sexual immorality within the church, he then writes and he's following up with them. He says in chapter 7, verse 8, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. You see the beatitude sort of flowing even through the reality of this truth that Paul is teaching them? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, he tells them, and I think it stood out to you, I, I, I pray it did, that as you were reading and you see the reality of what should happen, 
with one who grieves. Paul wrote them a letter, and there was, there was some regret in, in Paul in a sense of, you know, I hope this works out right, and I, and I hope I don't offend you too deeply, but there were things that had to be said, so he said it to them, rebuking them for the sexual sin. And he says, even if I did make you grief still more, or even if I did make you grief with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while it was temporary grief. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. And that's a godly grief. So that's the first thing I want you guys to think about when it comes to what is godly sorrow. What is a godly grief? What is it leading to? If we were to take the risk and and be people who truly grieve over our sin, when our sin is revealed, when what we have done wrong has been made known to us, whether by a brother or by reading the word or the spirit of God reveals something to your heart, you're in the wrong, you're in sin, you're walking in, in a sinful way. Sometimes we just simply get upset because the person told us we're doing something wrong. We begin to grieve. We grieve because of the circumstances that are going to change. We, we know this as parents, as you parent children, you teach them and you discipline. You take something from them or you do something as a form of discipline. And what are they upset about? They're upset because of the thing that was taken from them. The grief is limited only to the selfishness. I'm upset because I don't get my toy anymore. But does it ever go further? I'm upset because I wronged you. And it's the same way with God. When sin has been revealed to us, or we've walked in a, we know we've walked in a way that is sinful towards God, our life is in disrepair, or we're, we're walking in a way that's rebellious, and we're told this is not the will of God. And how often, though, then do we grieve and say, so you're telling me I can't live this way anymore? What am I going to lose? What do I actually have to give up to follow Jesus Christ? And so we see that the grief, the grief of the heart, in that case, is limited to seeing the world's perspective. But a godly grief leads to repentance, where there's a true change of heart. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. See, that's something that is in Christ. That's, a, that's an attitude, that's a reality in Christ. That in Christ, you can, re, you can turn from any sin. Through Christ and through what he provides, you can turn from any sin and never regret having turned from that. Never regret it. But a godly sorrow, an, an ungodly sorrow, a worldly sorrow, will turn from sin and regret every moment of it. I wish I would never have done that. I love my sin far more than I love God. So we can see the difference even there with Paul's example to the Corinthian church. A godly sorrow leads to repentance. We have another example of it later in Matthew. So turn back to Matthew, but look at chapter 26. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 69.
You guys, most of you will be familiar with this account. But maybe you've never seen it in this light, in the light of godly grief. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for you, your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. Sounds like grief. I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Can you pinpoint in the story the godly grief and the worldly grief? Now, we know that the godly grief is near the end because Peter goes on to be restored. Unlike Judas, Peter found repentance. Peter's grief was with an eye towards Christ. But earlier on, as he's finding his sin out and his sin is being found out, he was beginning to grieve. But then he looked and he remembers Christ. And he went out and he wept bitterly. I really do want to challenge us, church, to be people who weep over our sin. I want you to think about it. It will change your, it'll change your life, your family, our church, the whole outlook of what Christianity looks like in our community. Christians who biblically weep and mourn are Christians who repent from their sin and walk with Jesus. Sometimes, and perhaps, that is the one thing that is missing from you having victory in your life over the sin that is besetting you and your family, is having never wept truly with godly grief over the sin that you're holding on to. And it doesn't have to be some great, grievous thing. The smallest thing. To be people who learn that pattern, that discipline of mourning. And honestly, it could happen every day if we're, if we're real honest about this. I have a scenario in my mind that even from this morning trying to come to church, things happen where we, re, as Christians, we, we respond and do things in ways where we're not proud of it. But should it just be, I'm not proud of that? Or do we ever go to God and say, why, Lord? Why would I treat you that way? Why would my heart be so unholy when you said you saved me? The extent of his grace should cause us to mourn. The smallest sins against spouses, friends, children, even just the thoughts that we have. Just I want you to imagine a world of Christianity where Christians weep 
without anybody seeing it. You, you're, you're, you're living your life. You're trying to be a disciple. You know the truth of Scripture. And there's all these besetting sins and evil thoughts that we just can't get rid of, right? And so what do we do? Just accept it? No. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. The blessing, the promise is that if and when we are people who mourn, there is a reality of comfort for everyone who is like that. Every kingdom citizen truly has the promise of this blessing. Why? Because we can see our spiritual poverty. And having seen that and knowing the grace of God that alone saves us, we then can properly mourn over what we do and regularly, every day, turn in repentance and find grace and forgiveness and true comfort in Jesus Christ. It's not a one and done thing, brothers and sisters. This is a life, a life lived before God, a life lived humbly before God. Look at one more thing. James chapter 4, verse 8. James 4, 8. Just a short verse. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now notice the language in light of what we're talking about. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see the promise there? Being exalted by God in his timing, in his way. But what comes first? Humility. Humility. And a humility that looks a certain way. A humility with mourning. A humility with weeping. A humility that's willing to say, I'm not going to laugh right now. I'm going to mourn right now. I'm not going to be joyful right now. Right now is a time to actually be in gloom because whatever the situation is calls for it, whether it's something that you have done or it's something that's happening in the world. But it's a Christ-centered mourning that is biblical humility that leads to comfort and the exaltation that God gives. So we see the pattern that's laying out before us. We know that this is where blessing is. Christians, the question is going to come by the end of this sermon, what do we do with this? How, how are we actually going to live? What does it look like for believers like us to respond in obedience to this life, to what Jesus is describing? So may we be people who mourn. We need a movement of mourning, I think, we talk about revivals a lot these days, right? And there's much, much talk about it. Doesn't seem to be dying. At least the talk about it isn't dying. <laughs> That's good. But what we need ultimately is I think we need a movement of mourning. Christians who mourn. 
What would that look like? Should we not be praying for that? So what are some reasons that would keep us from mourning over our sin? What are some reasons that would keep a person, you, a brother and sister in Christ, or potentially somebody who is not even in Christ? You're not a Christian. You're not following God. You you have your own plans, your own world, your own thing. Why would you not mourn over your sin? And so here are a few reasons, and I've listed them really from the most grievous Um, and they're all to the, to the least obvious, right? But, but they're all serious. And one, one reason, one major reason that we would not mourn our sin is if somebody is spiritually dead. Because the spiritually dead cannot see that their sin is an offense to God. And so what do we do as Christians in a world where we know there are people who are spiritually dead? In fact, that was once all of us. All people are born dead in sin. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, none of this makes sense to me. I don't know why I would mourn over my sin. I'm not sure if I even care. You need to be born again. And so the Christian's prayer All Christians would be praying, Spirit of God, move in the person's heart who is dead. Wake them up to see their sin, to see their spiritual poverty so that they might mourn and walk in repentance, to turn from from your sin. That is the call on every person who is not in Christ to turn from sin and trust in Christ. The song had me nearly weeping and trust in him today to find healing in his sacrifice. All who trust in him today find healing in his sacrifice. That's what you need to do. You find yourself unable to find the answers for the grief in your heart, it's because you are not repentant and you have yet to turn to Jesus Christ. So, the spiritually dead generally are not people who mourn over their sins, so we pray, God, bring life. God, bring life to dead hearts that they might see you and be born again, and see the kingdom, and live out a kingdom life. A second reason is a little less obvious, but oftentimes Christians learn to justify their sin by comparing their sin only to other people. And so we don't mourn our sin because we find that we are justified by the fact that we've not sinned as bad as somebody else. That is sinful. That is wrong. If we, if we don't mourn our sin because we're always able to find somebody who sins worse than us, then we are not having the attitude in the mind of Christ. Philippians 2.3 tells us that in humility we are to count others as more significant than ourselves, not more sinful than us. How often then do we, though, look at other people and say, well, they're more sinful. I feel a lot better about myself now. That is a a poor way of seeking to find justification. It's it's inadequate. You cannot be justified that way. All you're doing is perpetually, you're perpetuating um, potentially what is your own false conversion. You may not even be in Christ. But you're also just living out a horrible, horrible witness to the world. That is not the way of a Christian. We've already learned the lesson from Luke 18. Remember the tax collector? 
and the Pharisee. That's exactly what the Pharisee did. Oh, am I so glad that I'm not like that tax collector. But who received the blessing? Who was it that truly was blessed and left that place rejoicing? And it was the tax collector. The one that the whole world said, what a dirty sinner. What a scoundrel. And not to mention that it's all just anti-gospel anyway, because considering that justification is by faith alone in Christ, you cannot justify your own sin by looking at other people. There is only justification in Jesus through faith in Christ. So there are several other reasons why one may not mourn their sin. I would encourage you to meditate on that. Think about that. Consider it. Search the scriptures. Search your heart. Ask the Lord, why? Why don't I mourn? And what do I need to do? Now again, this is not just a sadness. So what I'm not saying is we need to be sad Christians. You've all seen just Christians that are sad all the time. They're downers. Right? It's not, we should be the most joyful people, happy, the happiest people, because we know how to mourn. So we're not just saying, well, <laughs> we should be sad. This is a deep and heavy weight of sorrow over what our sin does to God's heart. And how are we to see this more clearly? And we have, I have one last text to show you. And where I want this to ultimately culminate is the only way to do this for all of us to truly mourn our sin and be able to find repentance is to look to Christ. Is to have a Christ-centered life and a Christ-centered vision of what he has done. Anybody in this room right now, whatever issue, whatever plight, whatever sorrow, look to Christ ultimately by faith and he will heal you. He will forgive, he will bring you peace that you've never known and it will be because of his power because of his sovereign grace not because of something that you've tried but because Christ is able to save so look at Zechariah it's uh, not too far into the Old Testament just turn back just before Malachi which is right before Matthew so you're not turning too many pages back Look at Zechariah, chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. Look at the, subhead, the subheading in my Bible is, Him whom they have pierced. This is an Old Testament prophecy of things that were to come. This is a messianic prophecy. Look what it says in verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and notice this, pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and the wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives. 
the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves and the family of the Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves and all the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves. This was a time of mourning. Now, what was the prophecy here? Did you guys pick it out? Did you notice what was, what was mentioned here that is very messianic? I'll read it again in case you missed it. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the spirit, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him do who they have pierced. Who was the one who would be pierced? Jesus Christ. What is it to truly mourn sin? What is it to truly be a person who mourns and has pleas for mercy? It's to recognize the cross of Christ and the very purpose by which or for which Jesus came. And the reason he came was to suffer for sinners the very cause of him going to the cross to begin with or the very what necessitated him going to the cross. What this is saying, church, is if we are to be a people who plea for mercy and who truly mourn over our sin and to have families that mourn is that we are going to also be people who look on him who was pierced for our transgressions. If we would be people who would be more Christ-centered and cross-centered, looking to Jesus, not to compare ourselves to other people, but looking to Christ. Do you have sin in your life that you're wanting to overcome? Look to Christ. Find first mourning and deep regret and sorrow that leads to repentance and true comfort in the one who suffered and died for sinners. That's what we need to do. So when I'm calling us to be people who mourn, it's not in our own strength. It's by faith looking to Christ, seeing his sacrifice, seeing what he has done to accomplish eternal life for wretched sinners who cannot save themselves. No matter any amount of grief that you conjure up for the bad things you've done in your life, look, regret will get you nowhere. Regretting what you've done to so-and-so, regretting the amount of drugs you've done, regretting whatever sin you have been gripped by for your entire... Regretting it will do nothing. The freedom is in repentance from sin and looking to Jesus. So if, if in any, any way at all, this, what you're finding is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart in any way, then the response is to cry out to Christ for salvation, for forgiveness, and to do it today. Today is the day of salvation. One thing you will regret is if the entire life goes by you, you have heard the gospel, and you still continue to pursue your sin and whatever life that you have created for yourself, though you know it is a downward spiral and you're damaging yourself and the people around you, you will regret coming to the very end of your life having wasted it. I don't want that for you. Nobody here wants that for you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't waste another moment of your life either. Let's not be that way.
Jesus in his Beatitudes, are there. he's teaching the disciples, and so he's teaching us. This is what blessing is. Let's not think like the world. Let's think like Christ. Let's be his citizens, the citizens of heaven, the citizens of his kingdom. This is what a truly happy people look like because all who do this have found comfort in what Christ has for the repentant sinner. That's the promise again. That's what kind of bookends this whole thing. There is comfort for you. Real comfort. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, eternal life, cleansing, freedom. That's what is found for the one who mourns over their sin. From a perspective of our spiritual depravity and that only in Christ are we able to find repentance and ultimate freedom and comfort. So teach us to mourn, God. That should be our prayer. If I could just leave that one thought, God, teach us to mourn. It was part of our prayer, so we're going to be trying to remind you of this this week, church. As we remind you, think about what that looks like for you and your family. Maybe, there's, maybe this leads to such freedom because as you mourn over your sin, as a husband mourns over what he does in his family dynamic to, to cause things to be difficult, or maybe what a wife or a spouse does to bring sin into a situation, can you imagine if there was true mourning over our sin? Children, teenagers who live for Christ do the same. Mourn over your sin. Think about what can happen in a family, in a home, in a structure where that happens. So what do we need? We need to cry out to God. God, teach us to mourn and give us the strength to do this, to walk in repentance and to find freedom and comfort in Christ. This is challenging for me. Do not think that I'm easily up here saying this to all of you as though I've learned it. I need, I need this. We all need this. Why don't you pray with me and let's ask the Lord to teach us to mourn and if there's areas in our life that we need to repent of, let's, let's take care of those things. Father in heaven, we are humbled that you would be so patient with us to allow day after day to go by, sometimes years, walking in rebellion, knowing the truth, having a knowledge of the truth, but continuing to rebel. So I'm thankful, first of all, for your patience. Lord, if there's even one or two in this room that, in that are in that category, they have squandered your grace. They have never looked to Christ for salvation. May today be the day, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit alone, give them eternal life in Christ, that they would cry out to you and put their faith and trust in Jesus, who alone forgives sin. Please, God. We also thank you, God, for your patience in the life of your church. To whom much is given, much is required. And Lord, we have been given much. Oh, we hear your word. We listen to podcasts. We have our favorite sermons. We listen to worship music. It's 
constant. But do we mourn over our sin? Lord, please let that be the thought as we leave this place, as we pray for one another, as we have the opportunity to minister to each other. God, in, as we go to apply what we've heard into our lives, in our families, in our workplaces, what, whatever needs to be done, Lord, may we respond obediently to your word. God, bring healing and comfort and renewal and cleansing and strength as we properly live as kingdom people, mourning over our sin, walking in repentance. Please, Lord, grant that to us, to your church. And we just thank you for your love, Lord, how you love us. For God did so love the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. How gracious, Lord, how a loving God has given us the way of salvation. Thank you so much, Lord. So, Lord, just have your way. Apply your word to our hearts. And, Lord, as we look to now remember you and your sacrifice, continue to draw us to yourself, Lord, into your loving arms, into your arms of comfort. We come to you, Lord. May we even come to you weeping. Please, God, do a work that only your spirit can do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.